Amen, amen. You guys thankful for grace? Wow. Philip Yancey, I think, maybe there's someone else, correct me if I'm wrong, wrote a book or something along the lines of the concept of what's so amazing about grace. If we consider that in the example of Jesus, we saw that though he was created in the very image of God, and he was, in fact, even fully human but fully God, and yet in Philippians 2, we see how being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something that could be grasped, but he took on the nature of a servant and became obedient, even to death, even to death on a cross. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. Well, praise God, I think we've had church. We can go home now. <laughs> no? All right. All right, I'll talk at you for a minute. Um, we got any football fans in the room? Oh, I see a few. I see a few that are nervous, like they're afraid, like maybe your team's not that great. I'm afraid I'm going to call you out. <laughs> go, go. All right, all right. That's not getting in the recording. Um, all right, see if you can imagine this one. People arrive hours early for church. On Sunday mornings, they don't just set a backup alarm clock to assure they wake up in time. They set a backup for the backup. They arrange their schedules to make sure they don't miss a gathering for worship. Throughout the week, they talk about what happened on the previous Sunday as excitement builds for the upcoming church service. They're there, oops, they're all-day talk shows on the radio devoted to reviewing last week's service and breaking down the next one. There's even a TV show called Church Center that runs highlight clips of church activities that have happened across the nation that day. When Sunday comes, the members start loading up their trucks, SUVs, and sedans hours before the service starts. Hurry, Dad says frantically. We're behind again. It's 6 a.m., Mom says. Church doesn't start for five hours. Last time we left at this time, we had to park three miles from the sanctuary and sit in the nosebleed seats. Someday I really want to sit in the front row, but you have to camp out at the church to have any chance of that. Last time we left, oops, the roads are really congested on the way to church, no matter how early you leave. At church, there are vehicles parked as far as the eye can see, and folks are out tailgating. Some have elaborate spreads prepared, breaking out portable grills and lawn chairs in the church parking lot. Some have television monitors and satellite dishes so they can catch updates from the wor other worship services while they wait for their own to start. It's nice weather today, not that it matters. Even in the dead of winter, they'll be out here in the same numbers. The masses begin filing into the sanctuary, cheering with great passion and excitement. Once the service starts, the people are all on their feet, not that they ever sit down. Of course, a bunch of young guys are in the front row. They've probably been here since Friday night. They have no shirts, and each one has a letter on his chest, and together they spell, get your tithe on. Apparently, the rumor has gotten out that the pastor is indeed going to teach on biblical stewardship and worshiping God with our money, and everyone is pumped for the giving sermon. It's one of the highlights of the year. After several hours, people start looking at their watches, and everyone is thinking the same thing. I hope this sermon goes into overtime. <laughs> I'll try not to go into overtime this morning. Um, that, that was a reading taken from Kyle Eidelman's book, God's at War kind of hypothesizing what it would look like if church were a football game. And, uh, right? <laughs> and isn't it funny to think that, that uh, 
for all of our passion as a country, as a nation, as we're bought into professional sports. And maybe not everybody, but there's, you got to admit, there's a fan base out there. And what if the excitement that culminated toward going to one of these events was, was, was half of that was even represented when people walk into church. Sometimes I feel like we walk into church and it feels like this solemn memorial service almost. <laughs> and it's like, wow, I'm sorry you had to come here this morning and waste your time. <laughs> but isn't it incredible to think, okay, what's, what's, what are a couple of the favorite teams out here? Bills, I know, but let, someone has a chance this year. What, what else we got? <laughs> Packers? Okay, i go with that. Okay, so Allie. <laughs> what, is, what is the crowning victory? What is the highest achievement that, you're, that the Packers could do this year? Win the Super Bowl. What about after that? Sleep. <laughs> Sleep and then repeat, right? Next year, you got to defend the title. You're not guaranteed. Even if your team happens to be the one that goes all the way and wins the Super Bowl, I guess another goal could be to have the most Super Bowl rings of anyone that ever lived. But, um, but isn't it interesting to think something like that, we pour so much passion and excitement into something that's so temporary. And not that it's a bad thing. It's fun because you feel like you're part of a tribe. You're part of a group of people that's doing something together. And there's this excitement in evaluating everything that happens with that. But when we consider in light of these temporary victories that the greatest victory of all time happened outside a, a garbage dump some 2,000 years ago in a place called Golgotha where the Son of God was crucified for you and for me. Yeah, God died. He allowed himself to be killed by humans, but he didn't stay dead. Amen. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and this is the greatest victory, not that he died. The greatest victory of all time is that he conquered death, he conquered the grave once and for all, for all sin, past, present, and future, for everything you have yet to do. <laughs> He's already paid for that. How much greater of a joy is that um, to celebrate? Amen. So, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> What is the sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> <laughs> so this morning, though, here at Renovation as a church, we're in our fifth year, and it's kind of interesting to see. We've had a lot of people come. We've had a lot of people go. Some of you, this may be your first Sunday or, or your first year. Um, it's interesting to me, though, to see, to look back over the last few years, and at least when you look at just strictly the numbers, we haven't grown significantly. And part of me wonders, why is that? Is it because church in general is not something that we deem as important enough to invite non-believers to? Is it because we're ashamed of what Christianity represents as a term in society and we're almost afraid to talk to people about Jesus? We're almost, or maybe we're embarrassed to bring him specifically to here because Josiah's going to sing something horribly out of key. Um, I don't know, whatever the case is, you know, it does, it does kind of surprise me. And Dr. Dan spoke a few weeks ago on the 3rd of September about the three types of lost people. And at the end of it, if you were here, there was, we spent some time writing down names of people that we were going to commit to pray for, for salvation, and commit to finding ways and opportunities to witness to them. Um, we've also been in this series called Acts. <laughs> 
because it's taken from the name of a book in the Bible. And last week, Kurt was talking about Paul in uh, Thessalonica and the Bereans and how they got chased out of town by angry mobs, religious mobs, or what do you call them? Bad characters. And uh, so this morning, I kind of want to pick up the story in light of all that, and this is Paul preaching one of his most famous sermons on Mars Hill. And it's a story about evangelism, but rather than just a slap on the wrist this morning, please don't leave, um, I want to hopefully share some insights practically as to how we can be that salt and light. So we pick up the reading in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says this, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, them being Silas and Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Remember last week, Pastor Kurt talked about the importance of being able to reason with people, finding common ground, and then through the quadrilateral, looking at reason, tradition, and experience, filtered through the lens of Scripture to be able to evaluate what is truth and to talk about truth with people. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Okay, time out. If you ever saw Saved by the Bell, you know what that means. Areopagus is a big rock in Athens. We got a picture? Yeah, there she blows. This is courtesy of Dr. Dan and Dana Spade from their trip this summer to Greece. So it's this big rock, and you can see Athens in the background that just, this rock kind of towers over it a little. So this rock called Areopagus literally means Ares rock. So Ares was the Greek god of war, and this, according to mythology, is the location where Ares was tried uh, for the murder of Poseidon's son. Um, this also was later called Mars Hill by the Romans after the god of war, the Roman god of war, Mars. So when we say Areopagus, Mars Hill, it's the same thing. But this is a little bit of context as to, um, you can kind of see there's a little bit of a green slope on one side and the rock on top. So this is where the elite hung out. This was the philosophers, the, uh, the city council, this is where judgments would happen. And I love that verse 21 is in parentheses. <laughs> and it says this, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does that just strike anyone else as funny? In a day in which we live in our political climate where commentary seems to be the norm, they literally did nothing else but lay around all the time listening to ideas and talking about them. No one else. Okay. I thought that was hilarious. So this is where Paul was, uh, went to, because this is where the epicenter of thought had been occurring for centuries. We pick it up in verse 22, and this is the sermon on Mars Hill. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. And so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath 
and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. How many of you have heard that verse before? For in him we live and move and have our being. Man, we're going to come back to that in a second. But this morning, these are three evangelistic lessons. Again, anytime we break open the word, we could probably give a 300-part sermon on any one of these chapters. But just in the sake of this morning, I'd like to talk about three evangelistic lessons we can learn from Paul. Lesson number one is this. Paul went to them. He met them where they were. He didn't run from them. He, he went and hung out with the council. I'm wondering this morning, where do we hang out? Where do non-believers hang out? Do we even know where they congregate? Paul went to them. Lesson number two we can learn is that Paul set his own offenses and preferences aside for the sake of the gospel. We read in verse 16 that Athens was a city full of idols. In fact, Petronius once joked that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. There was hundreds of altars and idols set up. Now, to a first century Jew like Paul, this would have been extremely offensive. This would have been disgusting. 15, 16 years ago, I lived in New Mexico for a year. And in Torrance County, which is the poorest county and the second poorest state in the Union, there's a high number of satanic churches. And there's a lot of people that would drive around with, you know, my other car is a broom, stickers, and some were Wiccan, but some were satanic worship. Um, And what's interesting, we had a guy that worked animal control that went to our church for Torrance County, and he was aware of at least 56 churches at the time, satanic churches that met the following criteria. They had at least 75 active members, and they practiced animal sacrifice. So, we had a lady come to our church one day. She'd been a breeder for the satanic church there in Torrance County for 18 years. And what that means is that her sole purpose for existence was to be raped by a satanic priest so that she could become pregnant, so that she could have a child, so that that child could be sacrificed to Satan and then repeat and repeat. And if you're feeling sick right now, that's what Paul would have been feeling, standing in the middle of all of these idols, these graven images to false gods. It's this this idea he just wanted to like throw up. And yet what Paul didn't say, which is interesting, he didn't point it out and say, that's disgusting, you're going to hell. No. In fact, he found a common ground and he actually commendated them on their religion, religiousness. It says in verse 22, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So he acknowledges their sincerity by using their terms. He meets them where they are. He puts away what is so offensive to him to engage a people that he sees that are lost and in need of a savior. And they were sincere. And they covered their bases, even to unknown gods. Lesson number three, Paul was a student of their culture. Okay, he sought to understand who they were and where they came from. Um, 
pick it up in verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, notice he calls them objects of worship. Again, to a first century Jew, the idea that worship was reserved for the one God, Yahweh, that this phrase could be used to talk about these disgusting, demonic, pagan gods. But he uses their, their language. So I walked around and carefully looked at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he sets it up. He says, okay, I see that there's this altar. And at first glance, you might read this and think, okay, so they already had hundreds of gods. And they had just one more just as a catch-all, just in case they forgot anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, have your bases covered. Um, but what's interesting is that Paul takes this God and makes it specific. And he says, now let me tell you this unknown God's name. To fully understand this, we need to jump back in our magic time machines and go back 600 years where philosophers like Aristotle and Plato uh, roamed the area. There's another one called Epimenides. Has anyone ever heard of this guy? Sixth century BC, philosopher and religious prophet, and he was a contemporary of Aristotle and Plato. In fact, both of them refer to Epimenides in their writings. And so he lived in Crete, and um, at the time, Athens had become victim to this terrible plague. And they think it's because, or they thought, the religious leaders at the time thought that maybe it was because they had done this travesty of granting followers of Cylon, not associated with Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I know someone was worried about that. Um, but the real ones. <laughs> but that followers of Cylon, they granted amnesty, and then they turned around and slaughtered them all. And so they thought because of that, that there was a god or multiple gods that were angry with them and they sought to appease them through, through sacrifice. Well, they go through the whole list of hundreds of gods and they find out, well, the plague is still going on. What happened? One, priest, one priestess hypothesizes, and again, this is tradition. This is um, legend, so to speak. I don't know how true all of these are, but it would have been a very prevailing thought or understanding or story of the time. So much, so much of Greek history is intertwined with mythology. Um, but... This priestess hypothesized that, well, then there must be another god that we're formerly unaware of that uh, is angry still, and we don't know how to appease that god. And so, knowing who Epimenides was, she said, send for him, have him come in. He comes from Crete, he would have walked in, coming to Athens, down through hundreds of idols of all these other gods, and he basically comes to the same conclusion that, well, indeed, there must be another god, because this plague has not subsided. And so... He said, the problem is, how do you pray to a God that you don't know his name? And so he proposed to the city elders a test to determine whether or not there was another God. And they gathered sheep. They went to a location called Mars Hill, or Areopagus, which is where Paul was standing when he, when he would have been aware of the story that had gone in here in the past. And he advised the elders to graze a flock of healthy sheep of different colors, some white, some black, on the back grassy slope of Mars Hill. And then he prayed something along the lines of this. O thou unknown God, behold the plague afflicting the city. And if indeed you feel compassion to forgive and help us, behold the flock of sheep. Reveal your willingness to respond, I plead, by causing any sheep that pleases you to lie upon the grass instead of grazing. Choose white if white pleases, black if black delights, and those you choose we sacrifice to you, acknowledging our pitiful ignorance of your name. 
So he thought that perhaps a God that was indeed good enough and great enough to stop the plague might also be good enough and great enough to forgive them for not knowing his name. Well, not long after he uttered the prayer, some of the sheep began to lay down. Even though it was still cool in the morning, even though there was still lots of grazing to be had, there were some sheep that laid down. Epimenides recognized that these were the sheep that were to be sacrificed, and so he called to the stonemasons to erect altars on the places where the sheep lay and inscribe on the altar agnostotheo, which means to an unknown God. So these altars very possibly were still standing as Paul walked up Mars Hill. He would have seen these, but he would have also seen that this is not just some general catch-all God. This is probably a reference to this specific date and time. So why does this matter? A week later, everyone that was affected by the plague is healthy again. The plague went away. Fast forward 600 years, Paul is standing in that location. He would have known that the crowd was familiar with Epimenides. He would have been known that the crowd was familiar with the story and what the altars represented. And in verse 28, he even quotes Epimenides specifically. And when he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That was a quote from this philosopher. And so he takes what they understood He took what was part of their culture. He was a student of it. And then he says, now let me tell you this God's name, who this God is, what he's about. You realize it's not our job to comment on another religion or belief system not our job how are we supposed to meet people where we are if the first thing we do is come with our fists raised ready to fight ready to push back ready to strike down but what if we come with hands open and isn't it interesting i mean it, jesus talks about this in first corinthians 5 that specifically it's not our job to judge those outside the church in fact in jesus example i think he only ever rebuked those who already claim to be religious. Well, and demons, but sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. <laughs> but, but to the sinners, he only showed love and grace. In fact, those are the people that he preferred to hang out with. He was, he was chilling with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors um, in, where was it? I got lost somewhere. Matthew 9. Um, and the, the Pharisees come in, and they're like, okay, what is this guy doing? Does he realize who he's hanging out with? Do you realize he's hanging out with the unspeakables? You know, so Matthew 9, 10 through 13 says this, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, he must have been listening in, it is, not healthy. it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Is that interesting? So I'm wondering, so who do you associate with normally? And for those of us who have been raised in the church, we've sometimes misunderstood, I think, the call of what it means to be in the world, but not of it. We feel like if we, are, if we get too close to the world, if we get too close to the darkness, that we might fall prey 
to his desires. And to some extent, that may be true, but how can we, under, how can we seek to understand and engage that which we fear and just don't understand? And for as much as a lifestyle choice may offend you, for as much as the way someone's vulgar language or crude talk, no matter what they wear or don't wear, no matter who they're sleeping with, is our response that one of grace and love as Jesus modeled for us. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 The Apostle Paul says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He says, it's not not about me. It's about him and them. It's not about me. It's about him and them. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Well, Josiah, that's all good and great. But you don't understand the opposition that I face as soon as someone finds out that I'm a Christian. It's not just that they shut down and won't talk to me, but they actually become persecuting me. I become known as this joke around the office. The Rev. Whatever you want to call it. Or, or it's just hard to talk to people because as soon as they find out that I'm a Christian, it's like they just close off, the train derails, conversation over. I don't know how many times I've done that, sitting on an airplane or somewhere else, and the question inevitably comes up. You've been rolling in conversation fluidly, and the conversation comes up. So, so what do you do for a living? I uh, work at a church. <laughs> oh, uh, my mom's religious. Okay, cool. Cool, man. <laughs> so true right (laughs) it's funny but I think some of it is because like I mentioned earlier that phrase Christian has kind of lost some of its original meaning it means little Christ but I think too often in, in media to be a Christian represents something along the lines of this And Christians may be known more in the mainstream media as being intolerant, hypocritical, religious jerks than they are known for the way that they love people. We don't have to defend a religion. I've talked to people who, they said they can't get on board with Christianity because of the Crusades. They can't get over this concept of the Crusades and Constantine that, that people would be murdered if they didn't convert to Christianity. That's not the example of Jesus that I see in Scripture. Well, Christians are hateful. Christ- that, that's not Jesus. That's a religion. But it's not Jesus. And so, when someone asks you, next time someone asks you, 
are you a Christian? <laughs> I might advise you, don't just say yes. <laughs> don't just point to your cross with an enthusiastic thumbs up. But maybe, maybe take a moment to say, like, well, that depends. What do you mean by that? If you mean, am I intolerant? Am I a bigot? Well, well no, but I, I try to, to model my life. I try to live following the teachings and examples of Jesus. Let me tell you about him. He's a God that dines with prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus is the one who sacrificed himself. No greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. That's Jesus. John 13, 35, Jesus' words. He says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer called it the mark of the Christian that Christians would not be known for what they're against. They would not be known for the stance that they take as much as they would be known for the way that they love people wholeheartedly. If you've been around here for any length of time, this is a story that you've probably heard multiple times, but it's just so good. So I'm going to share it again. In his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, Tony Campolo relates an experience he had late one night in Hawaii in a greasy spoon diner. He says, as I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place, and I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me, a birthday party? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, the woman sitting next to me said. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. I don't want, I, I mean, why should I have a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left. Then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and asked him, <laughs> I'm just reading what's in the book. <laughs> um, I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A cute smile closely, or slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight, I like it. That's great. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, Hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday, and this guy wants to go, us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room, all bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who really is nice and kind, and no one ever does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even bring a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other, and I had that diner looking good. 
The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the event. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, and her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her by the arm to steady her, and as she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing with, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, Cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, is it all right with you if I... I mean, is it okay if I kind of... What I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, walked slowly to the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we pray? (laughs) Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then, it just seemed like the right thing to do. (laughs) I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter, and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. And wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? There's a song that came out this year called Splinters and Stones by a band named Hillsong. It's just a song about God's love and grace as we see lived out by the example and the person of Jesus. If you remember the story where the woman who was caught in the act of adultery is drawn up to Jesus by the Pharisees for which the punishment was death. 
It was stoning to death. And they all had rocks in their hands ready to go. And they were trying to catch Jesus in a moment to say, okay, so do you live by the law or do you live by something else? And Jesus bent down, rode in the sand. One by one, the rocks dropped. One by one, the Pharisees left, realizing their own sin. Until it was just Jesus and the woman. And he said to her, has no one condemned you? She said, no. It's like, then neither do I condemn you. But now go and leave your life of sin. See, that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of grace. That's what's so amazing about the scandal of grace that we sang about. As this song is sung, I encourage you, respond however you feel is suitable. These altars are always open. In fact, every time I preach, I'm preaching to myself. I was in here on Friday running through. The first run through, I'm kind of timing out the sections to see like, how long everything takes, what needed to be reordered, what just needed to be scratched. Second time through, the Holy Spirit just convicted me and I had to go to the altar and I knelt right there and cried thank God for his grace and his love so this morning wherever wherever this song finds you if it's just a reaffirmation of the grace that you have received I just pray that you'd be reminded of that this morning Maybe for you, you're one of those who, like so many in our society, you've been raised thinking that Christians are these intolerant religious jerks. And you've never actually seen or heard about this grace, this love in the person of Jesus. And maybe this morning, through the example of, of Paul, some of these lessons, learning how to engage the culture in which we live, because there's no denying that it's a dark world. And yet we are the light. And when the light shines, the darkness flees. Amen. It's not just that there's a little bit of light and the darkness is going to overpower it. We don't have to be afraid of that. I'm thinking of the, of the ships coming in to the harbor looking for the lighthouse and it could be 99.9999999% dark on the horizon and there's this one little beam of light that can guide them safely home. Our light shines brightest in the darkest places. And this morning maybe God is calling you to a point to a place of courage. Maybe you're realizing some of these names you wrote down 5 weeks ago that you forgot to pray for them regularly. Maybe you forgot to look for, for opportunities to witness to them. Or maybe you saw the opportunities come, but you didn't know how to even approach it, how to find common ground. And now maybe that can be a resource. So wherever this song meets you, I just pray that it would minister to you in these next few moments. And then I'll come back and close this out.